welcome to stat. I'm telling you all. Medical true crime stories, and it gets bizarre. Karen Wickham, yeah, she used to work in ER. And now she's sharing the knowledge, so let's get involved. Hey, funny and scary at the same time. Medical mysteries, all facts, she ain't lying. <laughs> so tune in to stat if you dare. Cause crazy things can happen anytime, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen, or Kren Wickiam, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And today I am going to be covering the case of Dr. Henry Cotton. Not like Cotton Eye Joe, this is Dr. Henry, cut your eyes out, Joe. Or first your teeth, then your tonsils, then your stomach. Okay, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Right. But as you can hear, I have the lovely Mary with me today. Hello, everybody. Hello. And uh, let's get started. This case, this guy, this guy. I first learned about him when I was researching uh, another wonderful uh, doctor, not doctor, doctor, uh, Walter Freeman. And, uh, Good old doctor. yeah, so I learned about this guy and I was like, oh man, I'm going to have to cover him one day. Thing is, I love the history of psychiatric medicine. Um, I love the history of medicine period, but the stuff I love the most and love covering the most is the history of medicine, psychiatric medicine. Basically it's because it was a time of, of great change and great barbarity. Is barbarity a word? Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Um, so there were breakthroughs coming out of everywhere, but they just kind of didn't know what to do with the breakthroughs. They, a lot of them just lost their lost their minds uh, trying to to prove it. And uh, but that's I guess that's how it goes sometimes. But honestly, most of the of the horrible things they did was based on ego. You know, gonna prove that I'm right over. Um, I'm going to take this nice and slow and, and not abuse people. Or do what's best for the patient. Patient, Exactly. Because I think half the time, or when they far, first start out, they their intention is to do what's best for the patient. I think most of them do. But then you've got a, a, a maniac like uh, Cotton, who from the very beginning was, um, you know, he was bound and determined to be famous and to um, go down in history and he just loved the power and the 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 following from everybody and everybody you know following over him isn't he a genius and you know I, you know freeman was the same uh he as we remember he was brought up uh to be told that he was the genius of all geniuses so we can see the psychopathy right from the beginning except i don't really i couldn't find a lot of information about cotton in his early years like i don't know anything about his upbringing um, about his parents, I dug around, and uh, I guess there's just not a lot of, a lot of uh, information about him from from his youth. Uh, maybe it's because uh, Cotton, um, his he started out in the late 1800s, early 1900s, so maybe it was too far back to really gather a good. I don't know. Maybe the family was just really private. Like we're not going to talk about this Henry guy because. You don't really want anybody to know that he was our son. Is that possible? possible. <laughs> you would think if he was an orphan or something like that, that would be known somewhere. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, there's 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 no not a lot of information about uh, his youth. So let, let's just get into this. So this isn't just a story about cotton. Like I said, it's about the uh, a good history lesson on mental illness, a little bit from the 1860s to the early 1900s, but it's mostly between early 1900s to about 1930, which was, like I said, one of those times of great discovery. And also you're going to hear a bit about uh, Trenton Hospital, which was an asylum. And I don't know if a lot of people know about this hospital because you hear about Willowbrook and Penn State and, you know, many other uh, places. But you haven't, I personally haven't heard a lot about Trenton Hospital. So uh, Bellevue is another one in Bedlam. Do you know that Bedlam? You know, it's Bedlam. Comes from the hospital in the UK, Bedlam Hospital. And that's where the word Bedlam comes from. Did that matter? Yes. You might want me on your team for Trivial Pursuit. If they even make that game anymore, I, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I love that game. Anyway. <clears throat> there's an online version too. Or? Oh, yeah, there is. There is a <laughs> one we played on Xbox, and I had a little fit because my son could ring in faster than me, even though I knew the answer before him. All right, I, I, I've gone off subject, but uh, yeah. Okay, let's, let's get on to this. All right. So this story also includes Triton Hospital. Mental illness. There is so much stigma attached to mental illness. And it really, it ha that I mean, it's gotten better, but there still is a great stigma attached to mental illness. Um, but back in the day, or these days, in this period of time, it was very bad. People um, didn't want to be associated with anybody with mental illness. And their families just wanted to be at arm's length and just, no, that's not my relative. There was shame, um, tons of abuse. Um, and they're considered less than, not even considered human. And a sort of a metaphysical death would take place. It's sort of like, um, let's just take this body and hold it up until it dies. And then, you know, just keep it out of the way of everybody else. So uh, that's, that's mental illness uh, a stigma, especially, you know, during that time. Now, let's talk about Lord Shaftesbury. I want to go back a little bit. Uh, he was a mental health reformer. And back in the um, early 19th century. And this is a quote from him. Madness constitutes a right, as it were, to treat people like vermin. So even back in, you know, then, I mean, it, just because this horrible stuff's been going on forever, there has always been reformers and people that were compassionate to, towards the mental illness. And uh, so when we talk about the madhouse, the lunatic asylum, Asylums for degenerates and idiots. These terrible, terrible words. Uh, you know, um, it's, it, it gets in our mind as like the scariest place in the world. You have maybe profound anxiety and gothic fantasies and of nightmares. And, and it's like a tomb for the living dead. Yeah, when you think about insane asylums or for the, or another word was like for invalids. And the word invalid, invalid. It's, it's awful. So what comes to mind for you? Valid, not human, not... Yeah. So if anybody uses, you know, they're an invalid nowadays, it makes my, like, hair stand up on end and I start to, like, grind my teeth. But uh, anyway, so what comes to your mind, Mary, when you think of mental illness? Or not mental illness, I apologize, uh, like an institution. Well, I mean, the, you know, what we have now obviously is so different than back then. I think, you know, back then there was the 
that's where the crazies were and people screaming and Mm -hmm. you know and that's that's out of control you know throwing feces who knows what right and that didn't mean that it didn't happen but why did it happen because they were it was such it was so again they're not crazies but they you know just threw people into an area into a spot into a, a jail and left mostly to their own devices uh, with very little treatment, if any. Now, of course, that wasn't... <laughs> you're right. Like, you think of that as going on everywhere in the hospital. Um, probably not, but, in, you know, I'm sure that did happen. Um, so let's move on a little bit. Like I said, I'm doing a bit of history. This this guy, William Partiger, I hope I'm saying it right, was very progressive thinking. Um, he was considered a madhouse doctor. And going back to 1760 uh, to 1810... He believed people were being abused. Like I said, it wasn't always um, just everybody treated them poorly. There are a few decent people out there. So insanity was based on management, not medicine. He saw that you had to care for the mentally ill and support them and do the best you could for them. But you didn't have to do anything necessarily medical. But, you know, this is back in the mid-1700s. So the compassion was there. And here's a quote from him. The idea of a madhouse is apt to excite in the breasts of most people the strongest emotions of horror and alarm upon supposition not altogether ill-founded that once a patient is doomed to take up his abode in these places, he will not only be exposed to very great cruelty, but it is a great chance, whether he recovers or not, if he ever sees the outside of walls. Wow. That's pretty... So he's basically making a commentary that, you know, we're not doing a good job at this time, that, that someone who is mentally ill is basically doomed to eternity and Hell. hellish place, basically. <laughs> Psychiatrists were also known as alienists. And so it sounds like alienists is the study of aliens. And it's not that. It's kind of a, a type or uh, of psychiatrist psychologist so it was often used as a broad term but they had very specific things they would do so alien comes from the french word alien which means mentally ill person so there we go yes yes french. okay alien i might not be saying it right it's a l e asantegu n e asantegu so alien Maybe I'm just making it sound good. Um, <laughs> more more <laughs> than you do. There was a show called The Alienist. Yeah, so, um, so not only did they, so part of their job was to go into a hospital and to sort of categorize and assess the, the, the patient and decide whether they were um, able to stand trial, if they were competently, um, was it competently responsible or competently? Uh, now they say um, NCR, like not not criminally not responsible. Criminally responsible. Yeah, exactly. So, oh, yeah, I, I was on the right track. <laughs> probably some people who do try to fake that, right? I mean, oh, of course, sir. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, but they also had their own way of looking at um, the outcomes and the cause of uh, mental illness. So we will get into that for sure. But anyway, um, alias psychiatrists alienists more so were mocked and, and ridiculed. They were looked down upon um, and their sanity was, was questioned and they were all called shrinks and quacks and bug house doctors and smiling hyenas. I haven't heard the smiling hyena one before, but 
and they themselves received great stigma. And um, so the same things that were often aimed at the patients were aimed at the doctors. And some of them did act like a a man-man, and you could take Cotton as an example. You're not a real doctor. uh, Yeah, um, but, you know, this is... Yeah, I guess it's still, people still say it, but that's untrue. The insane asylum was a depository to house the mentally ill. They weren't treated humanely, and it was a place to store degenerates, as they would call it. Some of these words I use are not my words, but it describes what's going on then. Um, and that's how they were seen, and that they were kept there often until they died. So basically, keep them out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. Trenton Hospital was one of these places. It opened in 1848, and it housed over 2,000 people in its heyday. Um, It was not meant to house anywhere near that amount of people. Uh, It didn't start off uh, as a prison for the mentally ill. It was the project of a highly respected activist called Dorothea Dix, who she's really cool and worth covering of herself. She fought for the humane treatment of the mentally ill. So here they would receive professional and therapeutic care. But that didn't last long, though. People uh, slowly started to get uh, placed in there by families who who no longer wanted to carry the stigma of having a lunatic as a family member. And it wasn't done for treatment. It was done out of selfishness of the family. Other people that were sent there were seen as public nuisances or maybe severely disabled. And uh, so... Basically, anyone that no one wanted to care about or be associated with or cared for or be associated with were placed in these places. Even though it started off with good intentions, it got corrupted. So they, they, these people um, experienced atrocities. These increased admissions collided with the hiring of Dr. John Wesley Ward, a lazy, arrogant, and immoral person. He was hired as the superintendent in 1867 and was employed there for over 30 years. 30 years he wreaked havoc on the people there. He saw the patients as, quote, tainted creatures. He saw them as uh, biologically inferior and degenerates, undeserving of kind care. They were his inmates. He spent little time or no time with these patients at all. So, you know, he was the doctor, the superintendent. I was going to say, this guy was a doctor, right? These were supposed to be his patients that he cared for. Like, yeah, so either hire people and he would manage manage the doctors that work there or he would work specifically. But, you know, in it, like I said, 2,000 people? How, how do you care for 2,000 people? How do you care for 100 people? Okay, uh, in 1901, there was a cover-up that uh, an assistant doctor choked one of the patients to death and they were able to cover that up. And so nothing came of it and... Uh, Basically, the public and the people in charge, doctors, they didn't care about these people at all, except for the odd, you know, reformer. In the spring of 1907, so April 1907, much attention was brought to Trenton because of an outbreak of dysentery and typhoid fever. It had the potential to affect the people outside the walls. So God forbid, inside the walls, okay, but now, oh, this may affect us. Although the disease that mostly went untreated was a way of life in asylums, and this outbreak was out of control. More and more patients were becoming profoundly ill, and the death rates were increasing. So let's just talk about what typhoid fever is, if, if you guys don't know. 
I'm sure you've heard of Typhoid Mary, who was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid. It's not Mary's fault. Don't be hating on the Marys. Uh, She knew. Most Marys get a really great rap. You got Mary's mother of of Jesus, and you've got uh, (laughs) Mary Magdalene. Oh, no, she maybe didn't, but she was actually, I think, all right. I don't know. uh, I, I need to dust off some of my... Catholic co- uh, cobwebs. I think I'm like, I don't want to think about those days. <laughs> anyway, um, a lot of Marys get great. Mary had a little lamb. Bloody Mary? Okay, so there are a few... The drink, not the person. Okay, well, there are a few Marys. Okay, so there's good and bad. There's evil and, and kind Marys. I don't know where you fall after this. <laughs> okay. Anyway, what is typhoid fever? It is caused by Salmonella typhi bacteria. It spreads through contaminated food and water or through close contact with someone who is infected. Signs and symptoms usually include high fever, headache, abdominal pain, and either constipation or diarrhea. I didn't know about the constipation part. I just thought it was like only diarrhea. This day and age, it's treated with antibiotics and people feel better within a few days and recover fully. Untreated, it is life-threatening and deadly. The cause of the spread of typhoid really outlines the horrible conditions of the hospital, like unsafe drinking water, poor sanitation, and inadequate medical care. So back to Trenton, which is basically what was going on here. Within days of them realizing that this was in fact typhoid fever, the disease was taking over the hospital. And then Ward realized too late that it was an epidemic and he tried to cover it up. Not just fix it, just cover it up, hoping that it would go away, resulting in hundreds dying. By June the 2nd, two months later, Ward finally contacted the State Department of Health for consultation. Wait, two months later? Two months later. So how many people died in between? As I said, hundreds and hundreds. If you look at a population... Overcrowded, anyway. We need to yeah, that's okay. Me. We need to call the... the yeah. Just degenerates and invalids, anyway. Exactly. Um... So think about that. So if hundreds died in a population of 2,000, that's a frig of a lot of people. Again, one person's too many, right? But um, So he finally contacted the State Department of Health, and he pretty much ignored all the recommendations. So then the State Board of Health was like, uh, no, this is a concern for public safety. Though, you know, aren't they public as well? This does kind of sound familiar. Somebody with medical knowledge telling them what to do? And someone in charge ignoring that. Catastrophic consequences. History repeating itself. Yeah. Uh, The fatal failure, so this fatal failure to act uh, led to a full investigation. They opened up a whole can of worms because it wasn't just a typhoid. uh, They found out was out of control and what the cause was. They saw that patients were beaten and tortured, neglected, Poor and irresponsible administration, financial corruption, horrific patient abuse at the hands of the intendants, murder of patients that were covered up, lucrative contracts for food and clothing had been diverted to families of staff and managers. So these people actually could have gotten somewhat decent food to eat and it was just like, you know, handed over to other people. The filth of the hospital, check this out. The water supply was contaminated by leaks from the asylum and city sewers. The hospital's dairy floor was encrusted with human and animal excrement. Dairy floor? Yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot of these places had their own um, farms. Um, that would, they would 
grow their own crops and you know uh chickens and and um yeah so um so human and animal waste everywhere yes and then the patients uh sorry the milk containers swarmed with flies the wards were atrocious also covered with feces and urine patients were unwashed um their clothes had been on them for god knows how long and their bodies were absolutely filthy uh, there was no real cleaning done in the hospital, and every inch of the pa- place was like a cesspool. Yikes. Could you imagine? How do you walk through those halls? If, if Maybe uh, he probably didn't. He probably just went to his office and, and did his, his stuff and, you know, whatever. But I don't see how you could walk through that place and say, or just not think anything of it. Just mm, Whatever, that's how it is. How could you? Uh, yeah. The smell, just. Everything. And the conditions. These poor people. Anybody with compassion in their heart even subject another human being to that. Yeah. Warden Hayes were fired. And, yeah, up on possible charges for all the atrocities that were committed. Now, the governor in charge then uh, demanded a complete overhaul of the institution. So uh, a new warden was hired by the name of Samuel Atchley. And uh, a new medical director was hired, Dr. Henry Cotton. So let's start talking about Dr. Henry Cotton. He trained at the University of Maryland and Johns Hopkins University, and that's where he got his MD. He apprenticed in psychiatry at Shepherd and Pratt Hospital, which was at the time a, a, a highly touted uh, place to, I, I don't know anything like, much about it, but that was one of the places to go. And he worked under a revered Princeton graduate by the name of Stuart Patton. He then received an even more prestigious post at Worcester State Hospital, where he worked under one of neuropsychiatry's most prolific doctors by the name of Adolf Meyer. Um, then he, he worked under him there and then eventually moved to Danvers State Hospital and continued to work with Adolf Meyers there. I want to talk a little bit about Adolf Meyers. I have a question. Is it John Hopkins or Johns Hopkins? Johns Hopkins. Okay. Thank you. I never knew that. So, Adolf Meyer. Adolf Meyer. He is uh, some bigwig. He's a revolutionary in this field. Yeah, I'm going to tell you all about it. All about him. Adolf Meyer, he was from Switzerland, and he graduated from the University of Zurich and got his MD. And he studied neurology in Paris, London, Scotland, because... Europe was the epicenter, like it was the place to go for medicine and psychiatric medicine for sure. Um, He moved to the U.S. in 1892 and he taught at the University of Chicago, another very prestigious uh, um, university at the time. He was a pathologist at the Asylum of Kanakee, Illinois, another big asylum, and worked at Worcester State Hospital. He published prolific papers in neurology, neuropathology, and psychiatry. In 1902, he became the director of Pathological Institute in New York State, and he shaped much of American psychiatry. So this is where I think it gets really cool. So this is where I talk about whether you see huge changes for the goods, revolutionary ideas, and then other stuff. But this one, I think, really uh, stuck. Stuck? Stuck? (laughs) Stucked it? Stuck. (laughs) He emphasized the importance of keeping detailed patient records. Before, this just was not happening. And he worked with Emil Krapelin, um, who basically is the father of the DSM, the Diagnostic 
statistical manual. It's at uh, the fifth iteration of it now, which is right. basically the Bible for psychiatrists. So right, he right. pretty much, he put a classification uh, system in place that uh, led to um, us understanding to this day the different types of uh, psychiatric illnesses. And he also adopted some of Sigmund Freud's ideas of psychoanalysis. Uh, psychoanalysis. So think about Meyer. He took the uh, detailed records of patients, classified them, and at some and used some psychoanalysis. So that's a, a big um, thing to promote and to uh, to get out there in uh, psychiatry in those days because it just wasn't being done. So he adopted all three of those um, in nineteen 19- oh. So he, sorry, pardon me. So he was, um, so Dr. Meyer mm-hmm. was also, he was a doctor, but he was also a neurologist? Did he have a yeah. neurology background as well? He was a neurologist. and so he's got the understanding of the yes. nervous system from that. Very, yeah. Was that common for psychiatrists back then? Um, I don't know how common it was, but like Walter Freeman started off as a, ne- a neurologist, if you can remember as well, and then got into psychiatry. I think understanding the inner workers of, of workings of the brain um often led people to psychiatry because you know well this is how the brain works and what happens and then you know what went wrong yeah this is what should happen why is this happening yeah so um so he pathology right yeah and he adopted all the pieces of all these things and you know that's that's really revolutionary and you can see that that's still the case nowadays right like it has come up to this point where doctors do take uh, detailed um, records um, and they classify the patient and psychoanalysis or, you know, under different names now of still how many patients are treated. It's sort of like uh, the, the base of it. Um, Certain counseling types would yeah. be beneficial. So this is part of the reason why he was, you know, considered so revolutionary. So 1908, he became the director of the prestigious Johns Hopkins, and he was there until 1941. His main contribution to psychiatry was, well, everything I told you, but in particular psychobiology, which with his neurology background, that's where the science comes into it. Mental illness was the product of dysfunctional personality, not the pathology of the brain. Also that chronic illness could cause mental illness. And what I thought was really cool, too, is that he pretty much uh, came up with occupational therapy. Like his belief is that we can't let these people in the hospital just stagnate and sit around and and do nothing. He wanted to exercise their minds. He wanted to give them something to do. He wanted to rehabilitate them. So, I mean, and we know occupational therapy is really important part of all um, recovery. Cool. Yeah. So Myers, in part, introduced science to psychiatry. He wanted to revolutionize the old-fashioned asylum practice. Uh, Quote from Myers, pathological research that aimed at laying bare the biological roots of a mental disorder. End quote. Um, Cotton was able to continue to get prestigious posts. He was great at self-promotion, all which led to an appointment as the medical director of Trenton Hospital. So Cotton took pieces from all his posts and the prominent doctors that he worked under. And he cherry-picked the elements that he liked and threw all of them into a pot that cooked up a monstrosity uh, known as surgical psychiatry. So again, he, you know, it's good to pull out pieces and then uh, adopt them to use them all together. But his ideas 
became diabolical and to some degree unoriginal. Do, do you know what I mean? But I guess Walter Freeman could be sort of a surgical psychiatry as well. Like his, his idea was person cut parts of the brain connections and they'll be better. Remember, this guy was boil, pouring boiling water into holes he drilled in people's heads. Like he was, Freeman was working as a full out brain surgeon. And he wasn't a surgeon. Not, exactly. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. These people are, these doctors are out of their minds. They really are mad. Cotton was a surgeon. Was he a surgeon? Yes, he was. Um, anyway, uh, here, here's a quote describing how Cotton saw the world of psychiatry and, and such. Um, quote, for a quarter of a century or more, the psychiatric profession had sought to explain why its therapeutic failures uh, existed by declaring that the mad were degenerates and defectives, tainted creatures whose blighted minds were but a reflection of their hopeless heredity. So to him, it was like, you know what? No wonder nobody could be cured. Uh, heredity and other factors uh, to played in where he's like, uh, I got the cure. So, or I'm working on the cure here, so this is all rubbish. So, alienist, a form of a psychiatrist during that time, uh, apparently had a hopeless view of mental illness. There was a strong stigma attached to their views, uh, at least starting to, well, I mean, always there was a strong uh, stigma attached to them, but in this time, uh, the early 1920s or early 1900s, they were considered um, obsolete and that their ideas were just not with the times and completely wrong. So they saw that patients of mental illness were basically hopeless. Students of Myers saw themselves as bold, superior, ushering in a new and revolutionary way of treating the mentally ill. They would use science and laboratories to cure the mad. Cotton kept in close contact with his esteemed mentor, Myers, writing to him about his accomplishments. Now, the reason why I brought up about alienists uh, is because their old way of thinking just was not good enough anymore, and this whole revolution of, of science and psychiatry were, were coming together. So, like I said, he kept in, in close contact with Myers, uh, writing to him about his accomplishments. During this time, this is before he went to um, Trenton, he was promoted to second assistant physician at Danvers, which is a, for, for a relatively new graduate is quite a prominent position. And then, so he gets hired, and then he gets a year sabbatical to train in uh, different hospitals in Germany, or sorry, in Europe. <laughs> you get hired, and then you're like, go on a trip for a year to learn some more, which is kind of cool, but I mean, he was obviously able to, you know, talk them into it. So Europe, like I said before, had always been the, seen as the most advanced in medicine and psychiatry. Before he left, he married Alice Adela Keys, and really he did that because in order for more, most psychiatrists and doctors to um, be considered for lucrative positions, they needed to be married because it saw that they were like stable and settled down and, and that kind of thing. His first stop in his journey of advanced training was Germany. It was the place to go for cutting-edge medicine. Cotton was very ambitious, and he saw that psychiatrists were not prominent in the world of medicine, and he aimed to change that. Uh, he wanted to bring to the world a biological psychiatry. In Germany, psych psychiatry sort of fell into two sides. At the time, you had Freud, 
and uh, psychoanalysis, and then you had biological psychiatry, and they were leaning more towards the biological psychiatry, where the cause came from some um, physical manifestation as opposed to, you know, like the Oedipus complex or something like that. But, you know, Freud was, I could do a story on him, but I think everybody knows about Freud for the most part, so I probably won't. You guys can let me know if you want me to cover Freud, because this guy... He was messed up. He was a coke addict. He was, he was, he was, he thought he should, he wanted to, um, um, prescribe cocaine to all his patients. So he flew around like fried all the time with his ideas. So I think some of his ideas were relevant, but some of them like the id, the ego and the super ego, there's a lot to say about this, but, uh, some of the other stuff is like, I don't know, kind of creepy. But when you think about it now, if you think about biological psychology, I mean, now we know that there is, you know, imbalances in the chemicals in the brain when someone has uh, clinical depression. We know there is a, a, a biological reason. There's an imbalance in their organ, the brain. And so they often have to supplement with medication to stabilize that. So we know there is biological, but then we also know nowadays that there's a lot of reasons for people to have mental illness, whether it's growing up with trauma and abuse or PTSD from... Oh, that's uh, trauma, yeah. You know, be like, but, but specifically like war veterans and that kind of stuff. So, you know, we know that, that, that there's also biological, but there's also external reasons. Well, taking that a bit forward, um, when doing um, images of people with PTSD, to see that the, the brain has changed and it is permanently changed. So the amygdala, the hippocampus, uh, it, it's, it's, you know, the pituitary uh, gland, I believe. And it's, it's all changed. Like I know for me it has. Uh, you know what? When I was diagnosed with PTSD, I was like, oh, that's a bunch of hooey. I'm fine. I'm strong. I don't have PTSD. Like what the hell is this stuff? And so I learned more about it and talked to my doctor and had imaging done and stuff like that. And they're like, I'm like, oh, okay. Because I had to see it from a scientific perspective myself to believe that it was actually happening. And then when I saw that, then I could be kinder to myself and say, okay, so this isn't just me being weak. This is something that has physically changed in my body. Now, I don't think anybody else is weak with PTSD. It was just my stigma my stuff i wanted to be strong but anyway i kind of went off there but like following through with what you were saying even trauma trauma changes the body uh especially if it's like a complex ptsd someone who grew up with it and then took a profession or had uh something traumatic happen in front of them you know well whether it was a horrific car accident that kind of thing so what they were trying to do it or what cotton wanted to do was um he wanted to have more psychiatrists leading to the latter, the, the biological psychiatry. They wanted to trace the biological roots of mental disorder with a commitment to understanding the microscopic anatomy of the brain. Because then they, you know, didn't know. Yeah, well, we didn't have MRIs or CT scans and stuff like that. I guess only on dissection. Um, yeah, but even on dissection, they could see what the brain looked like as a large mass but not, not microscopically. So this is why, like, during this time, it was such a revolution as well, because they could now, see, like, microbiology became a thing. Um, 
So these are two doctors that he also worked under. One was Franz Nissel. He discovered the stains that allowed the structures of the nerd cells to be seen under a microscope. So that's when they can go, okay, now we see on that level, we still totally don't understand our brain, the big gray, you know, ball of mush. But it's, you know, we understand as much as we can, I think, at this point. He also worked under Alois Alzheimer in 1907. And as we know, he identified the structures associated with dementia. And in particular, Alzheimer's disease has been named after him. Well, there you go. Yeah, so he worked under these dudes as well, and Meyer, and, you know, so he always, he got himself perfectly aligned uh, where he should go. Yeah, now, good pedigree, like, good, good, uh... I think that's great. Some references. Here's my reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a pretty good reference. I think it's great for doctors that are well-intended and that have, that really, truly want to help people, and then you've got guys like him. Anyway, um, so he worked along... Um, men that boosted his reputation. When Cotton returned home, he was promoted to assistant superintendent at Danvers. So he's hired, goes away for a year, comes back and gets promoted. That's a pretty sweet deal there. He wrote many papers on the science of psychiatry. This led to being offered a job as the head honcho at Trenton, to which he said he could bring about a complete reform. Cotton arrived at Trenton and discovered the horrific conditions. He wrote a letter to Meyer about his disgust um, and intentions for change, and this is what he said, or he outlined in the, in the letter. He would not allow attendants to continue to brutalize patients. He would remove all restraints from the hospital. And he wrote this, quote, Patients by the hundreds have been restrained for years, and no one knew why. The whole place had an atmosphere of a prison, a place like so many other similar establishments. In the sadness of of the wards, the insane who have lost even the memory of hope, sit in rows, too dull to show despair, watched by attendants, silent, gruesome machines which eat, sleep, sleep, eat. End of quote. Within two months, he removed all 700 pieces of restraint from the wards. He began to train nurses to be specialized psychiatric caregivers. He closed the isolation rooms, installed fire alarms, he started an occupational therapy, therapy program, and he hired a bunch of new attendants. Now, I want to say at this point, Cotton was doing great things for patients in the hospital. His changes were revolutionary. And as you will see, that was short-lived because he became one of the worst abusers of his patients, inflicting unnecessary pain and suffering and death for his flawed scientific approach and ego. So he started out with good intentions or maybe that was a facade? I mean, it sounds like that's, you know, pretty revolutionary as far as the treatment of well yeah for sure he goes in and he cleans the place up and i mean okay that's great well yeah because they were more like inmates than just inmates in something medieval so like i talked about before that's why i find the history of medicine um and psychiatric medicine so fascinating because you see these breakthroughs and you see good happening and then it's followed up by well, in order to prove it, we're going to do this. And then you get a couple of doctors like Freeman and him that go way overboard because they have to prove their point. Even when things are pointing in the direction that they're doing it wrong or that they were onto something but didn't continue to study outside and around that. They had to drive home their original ideas instead of, you know, um, growing with them. Patients were little more than inanimate objects to them and, and they used them to advance their causes. Um, the cure was the goal, 
and you know casualties be damned and uh, Cotton's uh, patients would suffer the same fate. The significant changes for the good didn't last long. Cotton believed that mental illness was fundamentally a biological disorder. Okay, I can follow that. He would change the hospital from a primitive jail to a modern facility. All right, sounds good to me. And one of his beliefs that he adopted from Myers was to do a full history and observation of the patient and that was needed before you could diagnose their illness and what type. Okay, still, we're going in the right direction that here, right? Good. That's a good start. He built an operating room, improved laboratories, a functioning medical ward, isolation rooms for people with infectious disease, a medical current medical library. He set up regular staff meetings to discuss the new scientific approach and case studies. He adopted or, or brought in local doctors to be trained as consultants for the specific type of, uh, you know, medicine he wanted to 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 do um and they were then soon hired and other doctors and specialized doctors were hired and they were trained to be biological psychiatrists again sounds pretty good sounding okay and then off the cliff like lemmings lemmings <laughs> oh god is that what they sound like that just hurt my heart <laughs> i don't so can you imagine being a patient uh, during the worst times of Trenton? Okay, I can't even imagine. Mm. But then you see massive positive changes, only to be abused under the shiny new veneer, uh, veneer of Cotton's megalomania. So you're like, oh, this is horrific. And probably, I mean, it's horrific. And then, wow, holy crap, this is fantastic. Oh my God, this is horrific. Like, what kind of whiplash is that? Coup contra coup. Nasty. I want to talk about the scientific approach that Cotton touted, but first I think it's important to talk about another thing that was that had come about and was revolutionary during those times and just before it. Sterile technique and antisepsis. Wash your hands. Yeah, and actually find ways of, of sterilizing and cleansing an area. Anesthetic. That was huge. Anesthetic or antiseptic? No, anesthetic. Like they could actually put people out for long periods of time pretty oh. safely. So now you could... Oh, I thought you said antiseptic. Oh, oh I said, I said uh, antisepsis. Um, and so it sounds close. Um, so lives are being saved when the outcome was very poor before. Infection rates went down and the quality of life was improved. Now, there was still, you know, a lot. That wasn't great, but that was huge leaps and bounds. Because we could put you out while we take out your spleen. Yeah, I was reading about... Uh, Mutter, the doctor, uh, is the Mutter's museum. He, back in France, back in the 1700s, one hospital had a, paid $600,000 a year. Now think about that, how much that was back then. In wine. And that's how they, <laughs> oh. that's how they anesthetize patients. So they'd be so like, I'm so drunk, they don't even. Yeah, so like, ooh la la, have a glass of wine, you're feeling so much better. Oh, we're going to remove your upper jaw. That actually happened. They gave this guy a glass of wine and uh, they proceeded to remove his upper jaw. I don't think any amount of wine in the world would uh, would help that. I'm going to talk about Mutur at some point. I just like saying his name. Um, so the emergence of microbiology on top of that, uh, there were, you know, the breakthroughs, 
Breakthroughs were made in discovery of the causes of many deadly diseases and debilitating diseases. And then serums and vaccines were discovered. So think about all this that was going on in the early 1900s. Pretty friggin' amazing, right? So they were able to find out what typhoid, malaria, cholera, diphtheria, and tetanus was. How, how it was caused that it was like a bacteriological revolution. But antibiotics didn't come into play until the 1940s, so... They were able to identify it, come up with some serums, pretty scary serums, and vaccines that uh, they had to do some pretty crazy things to before they could work. Anyway, alienists were further frowned upon because they believed that insanity was a product of evolutionary regression or a breakdown caused by a defective her uh, heredity. It was irreversible. Um, it was damage to the brain and body. These people were tainted and defective, and this would carry on um, from generation to generation. There was no expectation of cure, which led to something even more dangerous and diabolical. Eugenics. What is eugen What are eugenics? Uh, basically, uh, eugenics are wiping out a whole population of people to um, stop the tainting of society for the betterment of society. It's sick shit. Uh, one of the doctors... Yeah, yeah. Um, so there was a very prominent doctor by the name of G. Adler Bloomer who promoted eugenics as the only solution to mental, mental illness as well as disabilities, uh, criminals, and the very poor. He was of great influence. What, he, he just like sterilized the mentally ill so they can't pass it on. Well, he preached that these afflictions, <laughs> he was a little bit of a, dra uh, a drama queen, he preached that uh, these afflictions led to the possible extinction of the human race and must be eradicated. Uh, it was a rough and ready method to fix the problem. So selective breeding, they would decide who could marry who. Sterilizing people. Of course, it was involuntary sterilization. So a bunch of people were sterilized and didn't even know they were because, you know, like we're going to didn't tell them. This, this is we're going to do this procedure. Boom. Sterilized. And. One of my favorites, it's not my favorite, it's just friggin' sick, was the murder, as they would say, of defective babies and their mothers. Uh, you know, this is Nazis. Mm. You know, this is friggin' Nazi beliefs, doctrine. I, it just makes me crazy. It, if you can see my face, it makes me crazy. Here's a quote from Bloomer. This is what they needed to do. Bury babies and their disturbed mothers alive. What? Putting aside a sentimental concerns from the point of view of science. Nah. Don't start feeling bad about it. Just bury them alive. Uh. Yeah. I have no words. Yeah. So Cotton didn't believe in this. He didn't believe in eugenics. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> he believed that mental illness, like I said, was rooted in biology and not heredity. So, um, the disorders of the body, not the mind. Uh, the seeds of his future diagnosis of mental illness being caused by focal infection were planted uh, in the discovery that tertiary or end-stage syphilis caused dementia. An infection was the cause, and it changed everything for Cotton. He took this discovery and applied it to all mental illness. So, because it was, you could apply it to syphilis, well, therefore, everything... It's like, that dog is brown, therefore all dogs are brown. 
you know, doesn't doesn't work that way. So since syphilis causes mental illness in its end stage, all mental illness must be related to some sort of an infection like syphilis. Exactly. Uh, then this seed grew into the theory of focal infection to be the only cause, and he would not consider anything else. So let's talk about focal infection for a second. Um, it's basically a focal infection is a localized infection, often without symptoms, and this infection causes disease somewhere else in the body. So yeah, I don't know, like you maybe have a little tiny abscess somewhere that is encapsulated and you don't know it's there, and but it's causing infection everywhere and therefore mental illness. The original site of the infection um, is hidden and it causes a whole range of secondary infections or disorders, like I just said. The key was to eliminate the focal infection and all else would fall into place. So you find it, you get rid of it, everything's fine. Just one problem, you got to find it. Mm-hmm. You got to keep digging until you find it. Well, I'm thinking about just recently, like... Um uh, we were talking about urinary tract infections in seniors. And I mean, of course, we have antibiotics now and stuff like that. But there is a well-known correlation between uh, either dementia-like symptoms or increased, sim- uh, confusion. increased exacerbation of dementia-like symptoms in seniors with urinary tract infections. And the fever that's related to it, yeah. So we know there is a bacteriological connection for sometimes these things in seniors. They're often maybe sitting in diapers and whatever in homes and stuff. So, but I mean, we found out that there's a lot of infections that can that lead to either temporary um, symptoms of mental illness or can cause that. Um, but that doesn't mean you have to remove that body part. So now we have drugs yeah. to treat it. Well, that's what I'm saying. But he, you know, so he's kind of on to something for some aspects, but. Again, he would not uh, do anything else. So, uh, Cotton initially focused on the teeth, then the tonsils, then, well, you will see more about that shortly. Mary, shh, be patient. Be patient. Oh, no. You don't even want to know. You got that. I'm shaking my head already. Okay, so many highly touted psychiatrists and other doctors supported this theory. And this theory really started to get footing in the first years of 1900s, like 1901 to 1904. Frank Billings was the dean of the School of Medicine and at the University of Chicago and the president of the American Medical Association and the Association of American Physicians. He supported Cotton. So, I mean, how is he not... I mean, it's impossible for him not to have some form of success. If the top, top, top dude is saying, I'm all on board. So he had the members of these organizations, as well as students and professions of the University of Chicago, um, studying and solely studying focal infection. He carried this theory on through until 1915 and delivered a lecture. So I'm talking about Frank Billings here, okay? Um, He carried this theory through to 1915 and delivered a lecture on focal sepsis to the very prestigious Stanford Medical School. And here's a summary of what he discussed. Quote, the existence of focal infection of the jaws without the manifestation of much discomfort is remarkable, often not discoverable by inspection and escapes the attention of the physician and dentist. So there's where that, like, let's start at the the teeth, the jaws. And uh, deplorable as the loss of teeth may be, that misfortune is justified if it is necessary to obliterate infectious process. End of quote. So they went on to 
include the removal of tonsils of both adults and children. So if the teeth didn't work, let's take out the tonsils. And we already know tonsillectomies are really uh, dangerous or not, you know, they're, they're not, they're dangerous in adults and a very hard recovery. Can you imagine doing that back then? Oh, I don't want to think about it. Uh, so, you know, from the, the tonsils, they'd go to the digestive tract, the bowels and the genital urinary system of women. And then surgical intervention was to continue until all infection was eliminated. The Johns Hopkins University and the Mayo Brothers, who eventually had Mayo Clinic, jumped on board. So now, okay, so you've got the head guy of everything that has, he was also president of a school, does lectures at Stanford, and he has the Johns Hopkins and the Mayo Brothers on board. Like, how could this not move in this direction? It's... It was, a it was a train out of control. So the push forward to a new era of experimental bacteriology was firmly in place. These new methods of studying and implementing surgery to com combat focal sepsis was not unique to North America. Leading figures in British medicine and surgery were hard at work developing surgical bacteriology. And it was uncertain as to the exact time that Cotton became obsessed with the treatment of mental illness with surgery, but it was, you know, seen maybe around 1915 to 1916. And, um, and he saw it as the master key to unlocking the mysteries of mental illness. So he had begun to experiment with the sickest patients in Trenton. The first 50 people he treated uh, with removal of their teeth, as determined by x-rays. These are like very rudimentary x-rays but he'd x-ray them say tooth's gotta go but uh, if a tooth showed any kind of abnormality it was removed so if it was a bit crooked or whatever they took it they basically took all the teeth out i mean what was oral hygiene like back then too I it, mean. it wouldn't be great so basically probably most of the world <laughs> had mental illness caused by their nasty teeth So all the teeth were removed if deemed necessary. And, but he wasn't happy with the results, so he moved on to the tonsils. And then he determined that 25 of those 50 patients uh, were cured and discharged home. Not all members of the staff were happy with his methods. And, well, because, oh, wait a minute. Like, I mean, there's no way he cured 25 of the sickest patients by taking their tonsils and teeth out. Anyway. And, like, all right, uh, you're going to have problems with your bowels? I think so when you can't chew. Not all members of his staff were happy with his methods. Rumors had begun to circulate about the high mortality rates associated with Cotton's increasingly elaborate surgical interventions. He turned to Myers for um, support as he sensed that his position at Trenton Hospital was in threat of being terminated. In fact, it was. They were already looking around for someone. So he goes whining to Myers, they're going to fire me. <laughs> and then Myers says, well, that's not going to happen. And he used his uh, powerful influence to threaten the powers that be, and Cotton kept his job. So in every case that I have covered, there's always, there always comes a time when these monsters could have been exposed, blacklisted, charged, etc., but they kept their jobs or found a new one uh, easily, or maybe not so easy, but they found a new one uh, in the same line of work, and people... People are just such cowards. Some of them don't want to talk. It's going to cost too much money. Um, I might get fired. You know, all these selfish reasons why these these doctors got away with it. I mean, just most recently we talked about um, we talked about Michael Swango. Like, how did he keep working right. and working and working and working? That's what I was. I was just thinking that. I was like, what? Like, what's his name? Yeah, no. <laughs> but so doctor. there always comes a time where they could be caught. Let's just say, and 
they're not. Or people just want to turn turn them around and say, I don't want to deal with that for whatever reasons that uh, affect them. So when I go, there were so many times that he should have Oh, been. yeah. Okay, so that's my a little uh, a rant. I'll, I'll move on. The State Commissioner of the Institutions and Agencies of New York, um, Burdett Lewis, cozied up with Cotton. And he had an ally with political power. So, the State Commissioner of Institutions and Agencies of New York were now cozied up to him. So he had political power. I mean, he already did, but even more so now. So Cotton pushed forward even harder than before to turn Trenton into an elite surgical bacteriology psychiatric hospital. So this is what Lewis supported him doing and I guess would have given the funds for. He hired a staff of bacteriologists, four physicians, four surgeons, three gynecologists, a gastroenterologist, a neurologist, a laryngologist, I said that wrong, rhinologist, an ophthalmologist, a dentist, a gen, uh, <clears throat> genital, genital urinary surgeon, a pathologist, six assistant physicians, a radiologist, and a oral surgeon. And all the labs and operating theaters and recovery rooms that he needed to support this. That is a lot of staff. That's a lot of staff for a regular hospital, but for a psychiatric hospital... So now he gets, he almost loses his job, and now he keeps it, and not only that, gets, like, massive funding and support for it. Um, so this was unheard of for most hospitals, let alone a psychiatric hospital. He was well on his way to building a staff for a hospital of horrors. Every specialist he hired, now think about this, represented a part of the body that could be removed. Like, oh, gynecologists. Why would you have three gynecologists hired to a psychiatric unit? Uh, laryngeolo- uh, lar- laryngologist for you know larynx, rhinologist, nose, ophthal- ophthalmologist, eyes, gastroenterologist, stomach, bowel, among other parts that include you, uh, gallbladder, um, appendix, and last part of the bowel. But you know what I mean. Uh, dentist, um, pathologist. You know what I mean. You you look at all those doctors. Those doctors were there to target those areas of the body. And uh, so you will see soon how the patients were forced, without their consent, kicking and screaming down the halls to the operating rooms to have their bodies mutilated. And they literally were taken kicking and screaming. And he would say, well, it's proof they need it. Look how crazy they are. It makes me feel physically sick just thinking about this, Mary. I mean, can you just picture, maybe my imagination's too good, but I just picture this place, this guy walks in and goes, that one right there. And we're going to go into their stomach. And because the stomach is really nothing more than a cement mixer for the body, which I will get into more of his theories on that. It's just a cement mixer. So there's no movie that can compare to the real atrocities and terror that were about to take place in Trenton Hospital. Cotton now moved aggressively to implement his attack on focal sepsis because he had everything he wanted in place. The staff he hired were not just doctors or scientists that were willing to support his goal. They were like very highly respected members, talented doctors that were hired. So he just didn't get any, you know, Joe Blow off the street. He, he got some of the best to work for him. Now, during this time, a new type of mental illness was being seen in soldiers who fought in World War I. Trench warfare caused millions of soldiers to die and hundreds of thousands to have what is now known as PTSD. PTSD had affected the soldiers in different ways. 
and as we are pretty commonly as known now, they suffered, um, it was unique to the person, and some would get um, what they call hysterical blindness, so they'd lose their sight. They couldn't sleep, they couldn't, some couldn't speak or, or hear or walk or even function. Uh, they would scream and uh, cry uncontrollably, sometimes at night, during the day. You know, they were, I would think, having flashbacks and uh, intrusive thoughts. They dissociated. They lost track of time and place. And, and some would become canatonic, which is sort of the, uh, what we covered already, and some suicidal. Um, what did they call it back then? They didn't call it PTSD. Um, was it shell shock? Shell shock was, was part shell of it. Shell shock was a Yeah, term. or combat neuro, uh, neurosis. Oh, that'd be like yeah. a technical term. Yeah. So these men were truly suffering from the horrors of war. And, and women. Yeah, yes, of course, yes, and women. And um, as we talked earlier, their brains were permanently um, altered or damaged. Mm-hmm. Instead of being treated with compassion, they were labeled as malingerers, cowards, degenerates, and they were treated terribly. Some were imprisoned and sometimes shot. The military tried to suppress the number of those suffering from, like I said, uh, shell shock or combat neurosis, and um, just they didn't want it to get out there, what was going on. But, Mary, tell me, was it infection that caused this, or was it the horrors of war? Uh, I'll choose B, the horrors of war. Yeah, exactly, but you know, Cotton is going to say, well, you know, they lived in filthy conditions, that's what caused it. Oh, well, they couldn't brush their teeth properly. Did they even brush their teeth then? <laughs> I'm sure they did. Yes, there was like a powder that they used to Yeah, use that's true. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You know that he could apply. Listen, if you survived trench warfare, I think your body could overcome a little bit of bacteria. Yeah, but he wasn't going to... He So this is a time where he could say, okay, infection, mental illness... But wait a minute, there's something that really stands out in this situation that's a common denominator, war, trench warfare. But he was unwilling. He had blinders on. He just wanted to go, boom, this is what it is. I'm going to make psychiatry as prominent as everything else, and I'm going to be famous. So, And yes, after seeing 1917, I could see how, I mean, any war is horrific, but that was a, a fantastic movie, but just, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... it's stuff it's, that... It's horrors. Young young men too that were you know some lied about their ages to go. They were teenagers. Like, there's there's no doubt I think in most people's minds what war d- does to people and and um, victims of war. So not just the PTSD coming out of the war. Numbers of other mental illnesses started to increase, and like any sociopath, he saw this as an opportunity to push his cure. He felt he had the perfect opening to have psychiatry respected and included with all other physical specialties and we're going to end there because the next part's going to be about what he did and um how he got away with it and just him getting increasingly um mad himself so that's that's the next part that was a lot of information i gave and i love to dig deep into stuff but i think it's important for us to understand what was going on at the times and I think maybe if I find it interesting about breakthroughs and then atrocities together, maybe one of you might. So <laughs> it was a bit of a long episode. but Oh, no. I mean, I think the other thing that's important, too, is you see, 
because you sometimes go, how did this person get away with this? But you can see he had like super heavyweight people backing him, like a guy who was like in in Myers. It's like the godfather almost of psychiatry. Like yeah. So he had people that were very prominent and high up in his corner, so to speak. Yep, yep. He just kept sliding through. He was very charming. He was he was a snake oil salesman, and he had a lot of people fooled. And um, so so that's where we're going to leave off today. That was a, a lot to take in. And uh, so uh, looking forward to sharing with you the next part of uh, Dr. Harry Cotton. Harry? <laughs> Henry Cotton. Uh, Harry Cotton? I guess Cotton can be Harry, I, I suppose. <laughs> Dr. Henry Cotton, paging Dr. Henry Cotton. Oh, yeah. Paging Dr. Harry Ball. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mary, getting a little crazy. I think it's time to end this episode. So everybody, please stay safe out there. Please wear your mask, wash your hands, socially distance. I know the people I'm talking to don't need to hear this, but please do that. Stay safe. And um, don't forget to take care of yourself, take care of one another, love each other, and love yourself. Peace. True crime and it gets none realer Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill ya Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah Subscribe, make sure you do that so You'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show, stat